In these days, we are involved in an ongoing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, having to edit some original plans and fast forwarding through certain passages. At any rate, we find ourselves for the remainder of my pulpit ministry, with the exception of that last Lord's Day, uh, here on what I've referred to as the Mount Everest, uh, perhaps certainly of Paul's epistle, but maybe, in fact, of all of God's word. Romans 8, and I invite you to turn to Romans 8 again. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find the text on page 1132. Now, this verse is not in Romans 8. You will know where it can be found with the first words that I would utter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John chapter 3, of course, and verse 16. Now, if that is perhaps the most quoted New Testament verse, then I wonder if it wouldn't be the case on a short list if Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 would be right there up at the top. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. John chapter 3 and verse 16 and Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, if brought together, you'll find that they really are quite related in their profound and concise expression of the greatest truth ever proclaimed, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider this with me. Think about it for a moment with me. In John 3.16... We have the doctrine that we've studied here much of justification, how one can be made even as a sinner to be in right standing with a holy God. John 3.16 says that the one who believes will not perish And the only way it could be possible that any sinner would not face the ultimate judgment of God and perish into eternity, into hell, would be if, in fact, this justification was provided in the person of Christ. God so loving the world, he gave his son. And then whosoever believes in him agrees with Paul's teaching earlier. There is therefore now no condemnation. To those that are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you haven't noted uh, recently, but in John 3.16, there is not only that great doctrine of justification, but our destiny is spelled out. 
the marvelous doctrine of glorification. Uh, We talked about it yesterday, uh, rightfully so, in a memorial service, talking about a brother who who is face to face with his savior. He has he has that life, as we said yesterday in the line of a great poem. He took a breath there and found it celestial. He took hold of a hand and found it God's hand. John 3.16 says that not only will there be no judgment, that is justification, but this one will inherit what? Eternal or everlasting life. There in one nutshell of a verse, the great doctrine of justification and of glorification. Now, Romans 8.28 is addressing the middle part of those two great doctrines. We come to faith in Christ. We are justified in his sight by the righteousness of Christ. We know our ultimate destiny will be heaven and eternity with God. And in between what we learn in verse 28 that comes with this great salvation is that God is constantly at work. Constantly at work. It isn't just that he cares to know the number of hairs upon our head. In some cases, I think he's answered prayer and kept a few more from falling out. I do know this. He works every single day. As we mentioned in our prayer earlier, the sun rises every day that we're given another gift of life. And we're told that whole fresh supplies of mercy, the same mercy that redeemed us, is a mercy that flows in the direction of his redeemed every single new day of their life. And so we learn this truth that God's at work. And what's he doing? Well, whatever God does, you know, it's good, right? He's taking every single circumstance from the smallest matter that may even escape your attention in a given day to some of the heaviest frightening, scary things we have to face in the days ahead. But we have the same assurance that whether the circumstances, right, be small or whether they be great, whether the burdens are light or extremely crushingly heavy, God's at work. And as we've read, he's working things, all those things together for good. There's a connecting truth to those Two great texts, John 3.16 and Romans 8.28. There's a connecting truth that flows out of those when you read verses 31 and 32 in this same great chapter 8 of Romans. Let's read those two verses, 31 and 32. What then shall we say? We've said these things. So what more can we say? If God is for us. Who's against us? There comes moments in time when you need to hear that again and ask yourself whether or not you really believe that. I mean, I know it seems amazing because like our salvation itself, it's nothing we could ever earn or deserve. It is all the gift of God's mercy and grace. And yet we read here he's for us. He is for us. I could put it this way and be totally biblically accurate, though it might raise the cackles of a legalist here or there. But I don't think we have any of those here. 
This is the truth that flows out of these truths. God is never against you for your sin. If it is true what you have just sung, that you have been redeemed, the scriptures assure us over and over and over again that God is never at work in any way that could be interpreted against you even for your sins. And what the truth further unfolds is this, and this is the glory of it, especially for a sinner like myself, and that is that God, it says, is for me against my sin. Isn't that wonderful? I'm the sinner. They're my sins. But I'm his child. And so he will work. And what he works is always good. He can't do otherwise. And he will deal with my sins. Sometimes it's in that way that is revealed in another text that when one of his children are disobedient, he will bring his father-like chastening, not his condemnation. His corrective work. That's a good thing. God works all things together for good. Even your correction. Even allowing you in some cases to taste the bitterness of your own disobedience. Just so you come crawling back to the only place. In fact, the only one. Who will say again and again and again and again and again. All is forgiven. See, God is not only concerned then with our standing, shall not perish, shall have everlasting life. That's our standing. But God is just as involved in the work that he's doing today, every single day, 24-7 in your life, no matter how bitter the experience, God's in it if you're his and he's working for an ultimate good. Yes, the events in life, they may go from good to bad. And just about the time you say, can it get any worse? And it does. But we're told here that God is for us. And that he'll ultimately work something, I like to put it this way, something we would typically say wonderful. That's hard to say that's someone in pain. But God will do something wonderful. Filled. About that? The wonder that God could take even an overt evil thing and work it for good. We have, it's the reason we have those biographies of the saints of old, both in Old Testament as well as New. I'll remind you just very briefly, I would think everybody here knows the story of Joseph. The cruel experience at the hands of his brothers who wished him dead and, in fact, were about to kill him when they came up with their other plot, God working providentially and the, and the rejection and hate that, that Joseph was experiencing. So they, they dipped the coat in a pool of blood that was not Joseph's, took it back to the father and said, your favorite one's dead. 
They were about to leave him in that pit to literally die when they saw the camels on the horizon and the royal people approaching who had bags of gold. And they said, well, we're doing him in. We might as well make a profit on this evil deed. So they sold him. They sold their brother, their youngest brother, into slavery. And in the days, the months that unfolded, You know, we read the story and we think it was a few days. Joseph had to live on with a broken heart and full of rejection, with the threat of death imminent at any moment. You know how that story ends, right? I need to fast forward. It's not my sermon text this morning. But those words so full of biblical truth later fleshed out, literally fleshed out in the person of Jesus Christ, Joseph is finally face to face with those same brothers. And they have discovered now who it is that they are standing before. They had every right to think that the sentence of death upon each of them would fall. And Joseph says, as a type of Christ, by the way, do not fear. Those are the favorite words of Jesus, by the way. Fear not, fear not, fear not. Do not fear. And then he, he spoke this, this theological wonder. I mean, volumes are written on this subject. But Joseph said it in a few words as he looked in the eyes of his brothers. Do not fear. What you Intended for evil. You know the punchline, don't you? God intended for good. Joseph, a type of Christ that becomes fulfilled literally in Jesus' life. Where in the book of Acts, it is recounted by the apostles how angry sinners and hostile to Christ took hold of him. Schemed and purposed his execution. Then the apostles declare, but God was at work. And God allowed his son to be taken into those sinful, violent hands, even to be put to death. While working, wouldn't you say, the ultimate good. The ultimate good, at least as far as we are concerned. Had Christ not gone to that cross by whatever means. You and I would not be sitting here this morning having any reason to sing praises. We'd be heading for the hills and crying for the rocks to fall on us. And instead, we have a savior. And a God who we know, Paul says, causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. It's not possible to preach a sermon, one at least, on this text. I'll announce now we're going to be in Romans 8 and verse 28 for the next two Sundays, Lord willing. And I trust he'll... Work it together for good, for his own glory. Now, today, in just the few moments that remain, though, I want to hit the, the mountain peaks of this one 
single verse, each phrase of it. And, and the phrases are these. And we know it's one phrase. Uh, the next phrase is that God causes. The next phrase is that he causes all things. The next phrase is to work together for good. To those who love God. Another phrase, to those who are called. An ultimate phrase near the close of the verse, according to God's plan and his purpose, which for his redeemed can never be anything but good. No matter how dark the scene may be. Let me take each of the phrases. A clock. I'm always doing battle with that clock. But here we go. And we know, he says, Paul likes this word. He uses it in key places in his other epistles. How about this one? Remember this one? Paul writes, he says, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. My very life. I have committed unto him and I know I'm in his hands. It's that this is this is not knowing just the theology of it. This is not knowing and being able to state the truth in specific doctrinal terms. This, when Paul uses it, is the knowing of experience. This is what we like to call experiential truth for Paul, very personal truth. I would that it would be personal truth. I would that you would know and be convinced and persuaded that Romans 8.28 is your verse. Belongs to all the blood-bought people of God. And then it says that God causes. Is it, is it just a given phrase or does not the, the Holy Spirit provide it here for yet more encouragement and comfort for the saints? Absolutely. It's God who's doing the causing. <laughs> Certainly in the extreme, we would say we, we Christians do not believe in chance. Bless some of you who've wished your pastor and wife as they leave, who've wished me good luck. Please, please, don't wish us good luck. I don't believe in that. I mean, I know you intend well. Bless your hearts. You intend well. And I don't, I think someone may have uttered it this morning, this latest. Please don't be offended. See, we believers believe that God is causing not mere chance, not happenstance, not circumstance. Yes, all those things exist, but it's God pulling the strings and pulling the levers and pushing the buttons and watching the clock and making it happen. God is the cause. Christians are not people who are just in the school of hard knocks. That's the rest of the world. We're in the hands, the skillful, gentle, caring, nail-scarred hands of the great potter of the clay. And he's shaping and molding. He's causing something. 
In fact, the next phrase, does it get any better than this? We're told it's all things. That means there's not some random thing that strikes at you on a Tuesday that God hasn't already planned. I've made a, not a new friend, but a closer friend in recent days with my neighbor, Lee, and Lee is out again. And I keep talking to Lee as I go over. I say, well, you have a date yet. You have a date. Oh, I'm waiting to be cleared for an incredible surgery he faces with compromised lungs, open heart, new valve replacement, and difficulties all along the way trying to get there. And I remind Lee, as I remind all of us this morning, I mentioned that again because I've told Lee time again we're praying for him. That God even has his eye on the clock. And he knows just when is the right day and the right hour and how it will proceed. And we are very hopeful because we have a God in whom our hope is fixed. The next phrase really is right up there at the peak of Mount Everest in spiritual truth, to work together for good. God's causing things to happen in the life of his children, and it will never, ever be anything but good. It has to be. Paul's confidence here is in the revealed nature and character of the God who is there. God is good. It's not just that God does good things. God does good things, yes. But God himself is good. Tells us, In the scriptures, one thing God can't do, which you and I do all the time, says God cannot lie. God can only speak truth because God innately in his being, in the essence, in the character of the divine Godhead is nothing but good. I know we struggle with that when we talk about troubling subjects like Hell. But it's only because we don't understand the holiness of God. If we did, we'd wonder if hell was enough. Before there was anything, just darkness and void, God speaks. And he says, let there be light. And for six more days... By the word of his mouth, he creates a universe, a world, and populates it. And what did he say at the end of each act, in each of those six days? And he saw it. It was good. It was good. Day three, it was good. Day four, it was good. Day five, it was good. Day six, it was very good. He can't do otherwise. Is God at work in your life in any way? It's good. It's good even if you experience it in the midst of excruciating pain. Jesus was always good. 
perfectly good. And his father was always in control. Yet Christ said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful and went into the dark of the garden. And there, so intense was his agony, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. I know of one theologian who impresses me time and again with his insights. He dared to question whether or not which suffering was the greatest. The physical infliction of nails on a cross or the incredible agony of soul so intense. The little blood veins in the surface of the skin burst open with stress. And yet, what do we know? God not only worked in that dark hour, And on the cross in those hours was at work on the third day when Christ rose from the dead gloriously to return again gloriously. And in the midst of all that brings many children home to be with him forever. God working together for good. The the Greek word that's used there, and I, I just love the language of the New Testament where it says God works together for good. It's one Greek word. It's it's synergeo. It's we get the word synergy. And when I reminded myself of what what synergism is, what synergy is, what it takes for things to work together. Some of you are engineers and you know all about that. I have to work a little hard to understand the nature of synergy. And and so I didn't picture myself in the laboratory trying to figure this out. I could smell some of my grandmother's baked goods. She was a synergist in the kitchen, I want to tell you. She could bake, and I'm proof. She could bake. Just a young boy, I I remember she'd go to that pantry and she'd plop out a can of this and a bottle of that and a bucket of this and scoop of that. I mean, if you take those things individually, right? Think about it for a moment. The the box said baking powder or soda. Flour. Ah. Ever get a mouthful of flour? Salt. Raw eggs. Some sugar, thank goodness, because even the chocolate was the bitter kind. I bit a piece of that off once. Thought I was getting away with something. Ah. A dash of another dark, bitter liquid called extract, vanilla. And she just plopped all of that in a big bowl. All those separate, rather unpleasant, if you think about it, ingredients. I can still see that flab on her arm shaking as she she stirred the big bowl. This mixture came together. And she threw it into these, these old pans. Seems she knew just the right amount to fill both to just the right place. You know the rest of the story. In the meantime, the oven was getting hotter and hotter. And when she had done her thing with all those separate ingredients... She shoved it in the oven. 
I don't know how she did this. She didn't even have a timer. But somehow at the right temperature and at just the right length of time, this is what came out. The Pillsbury Doughboy. Yum. Synergy. God taking every bitter thing in your life. Mixing it together. As only a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, all-merciful God can do. Blending it. You know what else is true of our God? He knows just the right temperature. And he knows exactly how long to keep it hot. I trust, can, and I mean no irreverence when I say this, I just need to draw the analogy. Frankly, I trust the master baker to take all those things that would scare anyone to death and all the while know that he's got a purpose in mind, an end goal, and that what's going to come out of that trial, whether it comes out on this side of glory or Norma glory, whether his purposes come out on the other side of glory, it's all good. It's all good. For one reason, God causing it. And he is good. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.